Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello, you're listening to the Women Today podcast, which is a collection of our highlights from the past five days. If you want to hear the show in full, you can listen on demand at manxradio.com. And we had rather a heated debate this week about homeopathy as we prepare to become inspiring women today in support of a campaign to give the next generation of employees, especially young girls, positive role models. We were joined live by Ramsey Grammarhead teacher Annette Baker. And we also found out about a debilitating condition which has a huge impact on sufferers' lives. But first, we had a little taste of stardom in the studio. And now... On Women Today, please welcome Simon Lynch. Like a fool, I went and stayed too long. Now I'm wondering if your love's still strong. Oh, baby, here I am, signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. Then that time I went and said goodbye. Now I'm back and not afraid to cry. Oh, here I am, signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours Here I am, baby I'm Signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours You got the future in your hands Yes, the Manx star is with us this afternoon to talk about his time on The X Factor, his future plans, and later, Simon Lynch is going to be making a very special announcement. We are looking forward to that. But Simon, are you sick of talking about The X Factor already? (laughs) No, I think just elongate the 15 minutes as long as possible. It's great. No, I like talking about The X Factor. It's good. It's been um, a really positive experience. So, Well... We thought, for those who might be unfamiliar with the show and therefore maybe unfamiliar with you, um, that we'd put together a piece that we're calling Simon's X Factor Journey. Well, first up for Simon was a small intimate audition in front of Simon Cowell, Cheryl, Rita Ora and Nick Grimshaw. Oh, and a rather large audience. Hi, what's your name? I'm Simon. How are you? I was fine until I see everyone. Don't be scared, everyone's nice in here. How old are you, Simon? 23. And where are you from? I'm from a little place called the Isle of Man. Is it like the Isle of Wight? What? Is is it near the Isle of Wight? No. And Simon took on a rather well-known Beyonce song. If I were a boy Even just for a day Roll out of bed I'm going to give you your first yes. I'm going to give you your second yes, Simon. It's definitely a yes from me. Simon, this is an absolute no-brainer. Got four yeses. Then came boot camp and a group challenge. I see the kids in the street. They got enough to eat. Who am I to be blind, pretending not to see their needs? Another successful round for Simon and a successful weekend as it led to the six chair challenge. Won't you hold my hand? Don't wanna walk on my own anymore. And finally, to judges' houses with the boys' mentor, Nick Grimshaw. You look into my eyes, I go out of my mind. I can't see anything, cause this love's got me blind. I can't help myself, I can't break this spell. I can't even try. 
but on the results show, a place in the live finals wasn't to be. Simon, how are you feeling right now, buddy? Uh, do you know what? Obviously, we're all disappointed, but we've got a group of six of us. We've got very, very close. And you know what? Team Grimmy. Team Grimmy. Yeah. Team Grimmy, indeed. <laughs> Simon Lynch, how does it feel listening to that? It's bizarre, because the first audition was months ago. It was back in June, and then um, everything, my life is just gone upside down and backwards and forwards and now I don't know what I'm doing and um, I've had the most incredible experience that I'm, as a walking encyclopedia of the X Factor it's been a dream since I first started watching it I was about 10 to be on it and be involved in it and I have been and it's one off the bucket list so How does it compare watching it compared to being actually in the X Factor? The one thing that you don't see which is one of the most for me significant and lovely parts of the experience is all the assistants and the runners and the producers who you get just as close to as the other contestants and you see them on a daily basis they're ringing you every day they're emailing you all the time they're always telling you where to go what not to do what to say and you get really close to them and you never see these people on tv um but they're the team behind the x-factor machine is huge 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 amounts of work and sleepless nights for them all now this wasn't actually your first attempt to get on the show was it <laughs> no no i auditioned in 2008 um i was 16 and i went across my parents bless them spent a fortune taking me back and forth to manchester to audition and i got to boot camp but um yeah i think i was very very young very inexperienced I'd only been singing a couple of months when i auditioned and then um it was a no and that was not as positive an experience as this one and then I auditioned last year in Newcastle but that was just in front of a random producer and they said no (laughs) The show has become I guess famous is probably the wrong word but quite well known for having contestants they have the sad music playing in the background they have a little bit of a sad story I think it'd be fair to say that that you came in for some criticism for almost suggesting that your sad story was the fact that you were from the Isle of Man do you really feel that being from here has held you back? Absolutely not. And um, I stand by everything that I said at that first audition. I think um, I I have learned a lot performing in here over the last 12 months. I didn't really perform much before uni. Um, last 12 months, I've improved a lot working with different people and different groups of people. But at the end of the day, Sam Barks didn't get a lead in Les Mis by sitting on a couch in Onken, do you know what I mean? Or wherever she's from. She, You have to, if you want to take this super seriously and be a big contender in the music industry, you do have to leave. That's not to say that the facilities and the education musically you have here um, doesn't help. It does. It makes you. But um, you do have to, you know, take a chance. What about for the families that maybe can't afford that? What about the families that, you know, don't have that money to be able to just jump on the planes and be able to go over? Do they still have a chance, do you think? Um, It depends on how much you want that dream. Like, as in, I know people who've gone to drama school and their parents, I've heard, have had to work, like, several jobs to be able to afford it. And it depends how much you want it. I know people that are scraping a living in London at the minute, uh, doing odd jobs because they're desperate for it and they want it and they believe in themselves um i fortunately was in a position where i've been working for almost a well eight months by the time i auditioned for x factor so i paid 90 percent of my own way this time um and was fortunate enough the previous time i did it that my parents um said but they but when i first got the call to say you're on the show this time they were no, <laughs> you were still paying off your master's degree. Like, oh, what are you doing? You're getting a nice marketing job down in town, and then now you're off trying to be a pop star again. So, but you know, it just it just depends, doesn't it? You keep talking about following the dream. So, what is your ultimate dream, Simon? Um, yeah, well, that's an interesting point. I came in for a lot of flack after saying, oh, oh, talking cliches, dream this, dream that. But you know what? This has never been a realistic job opportunity doing the singing thing because I've always been quite sensible go to university get a degree get a, um, a graduate job and so I, everything's still kind of up in the air like the, uh, obviously the X Factor opens a lot of doors and it's an incredible platform um, theatre's always been a huge passion of mine if you can get a foot in the door in the theatre world that'd be great so if anyone's listening and they want to <laughs> give a gal a job then <laughs> call me now a couple of minutes ago you called yourself and I quote a walking X Factor encyclopedia Oh, okay, yeah. I just want to test that. Oh, you know, All right. okay. I'll How win. many judges have there been since it started? All right, okay. Simon Cowell, Sharon Osbourne, Lou Walsh, um, Danny Minogue came in, Cheryl Cole came in, 
Brian Freeman was in for a little bit, wasn't he? And then got booted off. Um, then Talisa, Gary Barlow, yeah. um, Mel B, Kelly Rowland, Nicole Scherzinger, Nick Grimshaw, Rita Ora. How many is that? Oh, I lost count. Oh. I, I named... I re- 12. Was there 12? It was 12. And there's Correct. all your guest judges as well. There you go. All right, you got that one right. Yeah. Uh, when was the sixth chair challenge introduced? Oh. Oh. Uh, Come on, Simon. Come on. 2013. Ooh. Oh. Oh, right. oh, oh right. yeah. And uh, who's your favourite contestant that there's ever been? Oh. Ah. E. You can't say yourself, sorry. Oh, damn. Um, <laughs> maybe, actually, Little Mick. Wrong, it was the cheeky girls. Anyway, <laughs> you didn't make it through to the live shows. What is it like, really, to get so near and yet so far? Actually, I was okay with it. I was very at peace. I had a feeling which way the top three would go, and I was correct. Um, um, yeah, obviously, it's, it is disappointing. and But I think the... the it's, oh, God, it sounds like I'm telling a lie but the boys category gone so well the top six um even when mason came back and i didn't actually know mason at all um but it was so nice to spend the time that we did together and whoever would have got through out of that six there was no hard feelings at all everyone really got on we really bonded and i wasn't annoyed that che got in over me or sean got through like i was so happy for them so happy There are some people who are going to think that shows like this Mm -hmm. are just that shortcut to fame rather than honing your craft through Mm -hmm. sheer hard work. What's your opinion on that? I think that for people like myself who um, come from places like the Alaman where there is a very limited music industry, um, it's great because I don't know know anyone in the music industry. I don't have any contacts. Um, And so... On the one hand, you can see it as a shortcut to fame. On the other hand, you can see it as a door opening a thousand other doors with a thousand other names that you can network. And that was one of the things I went in to do was also to network because um, I like the music industry. I like how ruthless it is. I like how it's dynamic and innovative and constantly changing it is. And um, I picked up a few telephone numbers and a few names along the way. And yeah, so... And what about image, though, Simon? Because with your image, you know, the music industry, it's all about, I think, showing as much of your body as you can, but you're actually quite covered up and, you know, know. your average guy you see on the street. Yeah, I mean, you're comparing me to Sean Marley Moore, who obviously... (laughs) Well, you mean you're wearing a woolly jumper today. I am. I don't know about the heels you've got on, though. Yeah, I know, yeah. My boss wasn't impressed. Um, um, Yeah, I don't know. It depends. Um, I think the music industry obviously is quite image obsessed but i think it has to be because look at the people who buy most albums and i'm sure who, who sells most albums like it's, it's one direction probably and who buys the albums it's young girls and so the young girls are going to like you know the attractive boys maybe the bad boys and so yeah i see it um but then you've got people like sam smith and and your megan trainers who aren't your i don't know they're not they don't look like a conventional pop star but they've done it you must get recognised now when you're out and about yeah. down Strand Street. What yeah. has the general reaction from people over here been to you since you've come back? Um, really overwhelming. Um, I didn't go on the show. I, I, sorry, I went on the show and I thought my number one rule, but of everything else, is don't embarrass yourself. Um, I was not going to be forced into any awkward situations and I made sure I didn't allow myself to be um, in any horrible interviews. And... I set out also to represent the Alaman in a good light because we don't necessarily, um, we're not always in the press. And so um, I thought, you know what, I'm going to make sure that we come off really well. And I think I did. And the reaction from everyone over here has been so positive. And they said, you've really represented the island well. We're really proud of you. And I can't ask for more. Can you imagine living with a condition that affects every aspect of your life, socially, financially, your friendships, your family, the things that most of us take for granted on a daily basis? Well, that's how one of our guests this afternoon describes her life. Jill Merrick is 46 and in 2008 was told she had fibromyalgia. Now, Jill, you had been suffering for a number of years and we'll be talking more about the symptoms in a moment. But I wondered how it felt to finally have that diagnosis back seven years ago. I felt relieved that, you know, that when I was having the problems, I didn't think at the time that anybody was listening to me. And then to get actually get a diagnosis, then that's when it's like a jigsaw. You start putting the pieces together. And 
when I finally got told what I had, I was like, I'm not going crazy. I have got ill. I'm not... Because it's like sometimes people will say you're a hypochondriac because there's many different elements to fibromyalgia. Um, so, of course, you're constantly at the doctor's with illness after illness after illness. And when I got that diagnosis, I've, I, I've, I just was over the moon. Well, we're also joined today by Bev Beacon. And Bev, you were diagnosed a year and a half ago. How long had you been experiencing symptoms, problems, things that had been affecting your life? Um, without actually knowing it, it was probably quite a few years. Um, but you don't, it's like a jigsaw. You get one thing and you treat it for that. And then a bit later you get something else and then you get something else. Um, and for me, it was only when I started getting really bad muscle pain in the upper half of my body but not having done anything to actually cause it. So I would go to bed, get up in the morning, couldn't move, couldn't roll over, couldn't get myself up to get dressed, um, but couldn't think what I had done to cause that. Um, so that was really when I started thinking what can be wrong. But luckily for me, my mum has it. So I would be talking to her on the phone or visiting and she would be saying, well, you know, you really sound like you've got the same as me. So then I went to the doctor, suggested it, and she actually said, right, OK, yeah, I agree. She looked at my history and she said, I agree with you. Now let's try and treat it. So is there a definite test which says, yes, you have fibromyalgia, or is it just piecing together all the symptoms that you have experienced? Um, I think Jill has mentioned that there's a test with pressure points on the body, but that's not how I was diagnosed. Mine was more going over my history and then it culminating in the pain. But I do think there is a test, isn't there? There is about 18 pressure points that you have on your body. If you've got more than 11 out of the 18, then that's pretty much. And then going, the doctor's going through your medical history um, and looking at what illnesses and the problems that you've had. Um, then they actually come up with a diagnosis of having fibromyalgia because people have this multiple problems with themselves. But then when you go on, they refer you to a, a consultant over one issue and then you get referred to another consultant with another issue. But then the test results will come back negative. But you would have actually have the symptoms. You go through the motions, but you didn't actually have these con conditions. And doctors and consultants will be sitting there scratching their heads going, what's going on here? Um, and then obviously with me being in such severe pain on a day-to-day -day basis... Like Beverly said, not get, being able to get out of bed, not being able to get dressed, not being able to have a drink or lift a cup of coffee up or not being able to feed yourself because you were so weak and you were so tired. There was times where I actually thought at the beginning that I was dying. I thought this is my, this is it, this is the end. Um, and obviously the impact that it has on the family with the children, your husband, friends, you know, it, it has such a massive impact on you um, and it affects so much but there's, there is no defined um, evidence to, to, to say that you've actually got this condition it's just basically the consultant I got referred to the rheumatologist because of the, the volume of pain that I was in at the time and obviously having these problems and going through the motions with these illnesses and these conditions I got referred to the rheumatologist and it is actually the rheumatologist that can that can diagnose you with this condition. So when we're talking about fibromyalgia then, I'm just wondering how you actually define what exactly it is and the cause that it has on your body. What effect does it actually have on you physically? Um, as you, you, some days you get up and you can't remember what you're doing or how you got, get into this place, you know, to this spot. Even just something as simple as making a cup of tea can be difficult in just actually trying to process a day-to-day -day life. Um, and obviously living in pain and not being able to do the things that you used to do, like go to work or you have a social life, that's gone out the window. Your family, your friends, you know, it has a major impact because friends don't understand. All they've seen is you going in and out of doctors for years complaining of this complaining of that and eventually they they kind of you know they get fed up of listening to it and 
Can, can you, you become isolated? Can you, Jill, pinpoint exactly when you think this started? Is it something that does have a definite um, start point or does it just gradually evolve? I, I, I don't know how it started. I mean, initially I was diagnosed with endometriosis and for 15 years I've been in and out of hospital, surgery after surgery. Um, and then obviously having resulting in me having a hysterectomy at one point, after I'd had that hysterectomy done, I, I never recovered I didn't know what was wrong with me. It was as if somebody had just hit me with a truck, uh, not being able to do the things, a day-to-day life that you would do. Um, and that's when I started asking questions, what's going on with me? Um, and you become depressed because people don't understand and, and you go into doctors and then you're banging your head thinking, why is nobody listening to me? And then when you finally get that diagnosis, it it starts to... Like I said before, you have a jigsaw effect. You start putting the pieces together and you're looking at the pieces and then you think, yeah, I can relate to this and I can relate to that and now I understand more about the condition. But at first it's just a diagnosis. So you get the diagnosis and it's just a case of taking medication and seeing which best suits you. And how well is that medication working for you, Jill? Um, At the moment, I can just about cope and deal with but most days I I seem to be finding now for the last 18 months I'm spending more and more time in bed more and more problems are arising medically Um, and and obviously it does have this big effect on on my my life I I spend most of my time in bed Um, like today I got up this morning and I was I was so tired this morning. I, I I slept through an alarm, and I should have been at the nurse to get my routine bloods done. But I I just slept through it. In fact, the whole family did. But um, I couldn't make it. It's taken me all morning just to get ready to get here to this point. And even now, I'm I'm still tired. I'm still my body's still trying to wake up, and it just doesn't seem to want to get to that point where you you can just feel refreshed. Bev, just listening to Jill talking about the fact that, you know, the frustration of never really feeling well, have you felt much better since you were officially diagnosed? Um, I found the diagnosis to be a bit of an anticlimax because I thought, oh, yay, I know now what's wrong with me. But then that was it. It was a bit flat. I was hoping that then I would get something and I would feel wonderful and everything would go away. And it's not been the case. So it felt a little bit of a letdown if that makes any sense. Um, but uh, luckily at the moment, the medical, the medicines are working for me, so I'm okay, just about. A couple of months ago, I was at a networking event organised by Lancaster University for former students, and I bumped into my old German teacher, old as in former, obviously, uh, who was not only a Lancaster Uni graduate, but also embarking on a really, really interesting scheme about inspiring future generations of employees, especially young women. Annette Baker, guten Tag. Guten Tag. See, I haven't lost it. Brilliant. <clears throat> yeah, we're all a little bit giddy, I think, having a, a teacher in the room, because you're... They're being very, very naughty. Yes, <laughs> Can you um, get me, give me a detention? <laughs> Joe, can you write lines? Yeah, <clears throat> just. Um, Annette, you did French and German at Lancaster. So have you always had an, a knack for languages? Was that always what you wanted to do? I think so. It was also influenced by the fact that my mum is German and uh, I grew up with the sound of that language in particular in, in, my, in my life. And I've just always been really interested in finding out more about both countries and particularly Germany, which is is quite uh, an enigmatic country for many and quite a controversial one for lots of others. Um, And I've always been really fascinated just to to find out more about it, to get behind the the reality behind the myth and behind uh, the picture of the country sometimes expounded in the media. So that really drove my choice of of, um, subjects, I suppose, at university. And the languages are just fantastic in their own right. And learn languages, you people out there. So were you bilingual when you grew up? I can't even speak English today. Unfortunately not. Um, it was a great advantage having a, a mother who was, who was a native speaker because I could always speak German at home with mum and still do. Um, but um, unfortunately, like everybody else, I went to school and uh, learned it the hard way. Um, I think definitely having the sound of the language in my ear that made, made it very much easier to learn. 
Um, and as I say, the advantage of having somebody who you could easily converse with all the time was great. When did your mum leave Germany? Um, she left, um, gosh, when was it? She's told me this so many times and she'd be so annoyed that I can't remember the year, but it was, she, she was a child in the war. She was born in 1932, so the, the, obviously the war broke out in 1939. It was a difficult time in Germany. She left uh, Germany, as I've recalled now, in um, 1950s, 1952, 53, um, and it, it was it was a difficult place to grow up in at the time. I mean, the place... Uh, was flattened. They call it the call it the uh, the zero hour of German history, 1945. And uh, you can imagine, after all the, um, the 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 traumas of the the Second World War, it was a very difficult place to establish yourself as a young person. So she uh, decided to get out uh, and travel the world. And she got as far as England, met my dad, and uh, stayed in the UK ever since. Well, Annette, we're going to be talking about inspiring women a little bit later. Who was it that inspired you growing up? Gosh, what a question! I'd have to say, thinking about it, my mum. Um, she's um, in 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 many ways been always been my inspiration. Um, from choosing to take German at university, from speaking German, from travelling to the country, finding out more about it, uh, and for also giving me a sense of the importance of education. Um, I was the first in my family to go to university, and from my mum, it was always expected. Um, you know, she always, I grew up as well as listening to this um, this wonderful person with a German accent who, I have to say, she gets the mickey taken out of her by my sons uh, for, for the accent occasionally. But uh, if they could speak German as well as she speaks English, I'm sure they wouldn't do it. Um, but um, it was always expected of me that um, I would go to university and uh, uh, she never wavered from that vision. And uh, so, uh, uh, yes, mum, thank you. Well, education was obviously so important to you that that's what you wanted to do for a career. And you started teaching in Douglas in 1984. Teaching, I guess, the the essence of that is all about inspiring youngsters. Would you say that's still the linchpin of that profession? Absolutely. You you go into teaching um, really with, I think all teachers would admit, uh, a desire to change the world for the better in some way and to help young people to to make choices in their life which will make the world a better place. You've got to be an idealist uh, to a certain extent, being a teacher. Uh, and I don't think that ever changes. And, and working with younger teachers now, um, I still recognise those kinds of signs and traits of a sense of vocation in people, which I felt very strongly in 1984 and still do. The job has changed. Um, the challenges essentially remain the same, of, same of getting the best out of young people. Uh, and of of being passionately devoted, really, to um, to doing the best by them. You said the jobs change. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, I speak to to teachers that I know, and they seem to say with a heavy heart that it's really all about the paperwork these days. Well, that's why I'm in a in a really fortunate position uh, as as head teacher now to 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 try to address some of those issues. There is no doubt accountability uh, is a key part of our our job, and so it should be because we are accountable to the public. We're accountable to everybody um, who we serve. Um, however, the key um, reason that people came into the job was to make a difference because they were passionate about the subject that they uh, that they teach essentially, and so. Um, the more that we can keep a focus on um, the teaching and learning side of it and the joy uh, that that brings both to teachers and to learners, um, the better the job is. Um, we can't be naive and say paperwork doesn't have a part in it because uh, because that has to be part of the role. Um, but I think as head teacher, certainly, I'm very clear um, that the job is about um, inspiring people with a love of, uh, of, of subjects and a love of learning. Uh, and uh, if we can keep the paperwork to a minimum, all the better. You mentioned your three sons. You've also got a stepdaughter as well. They're all grown up and in work themselves now. How difficult would you say it was for you and for them having a teacher as a parent? You'd probably have to ask them how they felt about it. But they, um, to be quite honest, none of them complained about me being in the school so I, I suppose that's a sort of negative positive as it were you taught them did you? I did I taught um all except Michael Michael's my youngest and somehow escaped he didn't disappointingly he didn't do German for GCSE so um he escaped being in my class but um I taught all the other three um and each one of them posed slightly different challenges and were, were slightly different in their response to me in the school I think um 
um my my middle son phil was always very comfortable with me uh, as uh, being in the school um uh, and uh, although he always called me miss eldest son occasionally called me mum uh, and mike just ignored me <laughs> but, but um, did you feel under pressure to be harder on them because they were yours um i think i was very conscious of the fact that i couldn't show them any favoritism um because i i, I treat and this, this this sounds a bit twee but i think it is uh, I think it is true, and I'm being true to myself in saying this, that all of the children in the school are my children. And um, I, I like to think that every single child that I um, interact with or have anything to do with would get the same service as my own children get. So to that extent, having my own children in the class uh, was a good measure of that because, um, uh, you know, I, I think that as a teacher and as a head teacher now, um, the education which we provide has got to be good enough for my own children and I can quite honestly say hand in heart that uh, I, I work hard every day to make sure that it is because I've had the experience of teaching my own children and I know how high my expectations of edu education always were for them. Well, Annette Baker, thank you so much for being our guest this afternoon. We'll try and behave from now on. I don't <coughs> think there's any chance of that. <laughs> how rude. We've also had an email from Laura who says, can you give my friend Hannah Foreman a shout out? She misses home and is listening all the way from New York for some Manx goodness. Oh, is that, is that a shout out? Is that how you do a shout out? I've I'm never known sure. how you do I a shout know. out. Hi. That's Hi. the shout out. Hello. Hello, Hannah. Hey. <laughs> is that a New York, in New York aren't we? Yeah. I nearly said good eye. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. whatever. I, okay. She Sorry. just switched off. Uh, yeah, <laughs> never mind. You're listening to Women Today on Manx Radio. It's 20 past two and the controversial practice of homeopathy is in the news today. Is there ever a place for alternative medicine in hospitals or GP surgeries? There is the UK news story that goes a little something like this. The NHS is considering a ban on homeopathy prescriptions. The technique uses highly diluted substances, but experts say there's no scientific evidence it works. In 2010, a UK government-backed report said that the remedies were underpinned by principles which are scientifically implausible. Ministers say they'll consult on the matter. Well, the controversial practice is based on the principle that like cures like, but critics say patients are being given useless sugar pills. The Faculty of Homeopathy, though, says the therapy has profound effects and patients back it. Simon Singh, who's the founder of the Good Thinking Society, which is campaigning for homeopathy to be blacklisted, says given the finite resources of the NHS, any spending on homeopathy is utterly unjustifiable. The money spent on these disproven remedies can be far better spent on treatments that offer real benefits to patients. But Dr Helen Beaumont, who's a GP and the president of the Faculty of Homeopathy, says other drugs such as SSRIs for depression would be a better target for saving money as homeopathic pills had a, and she quotes, profound effect on patients. We've had a uh, comment from the Department of Health here on the Isle of Man when we asked them uh, if this is similar situation on the Isle of Man as it is in the UK and we've had a response saying the Isle of Man is indeed bound by the same rules as the UK on comp complementary and alternative medicines. The web pages of the Isle of Man Clinical Recommendations Committee, which advises the Department of Health and Social Care on such matters, includes a policy to the effect that complementary and alternative therapies should generally be treated as low priority unless they are currently provided as part of an established pathway of care because there is insufficient quality evidence to demonstrate their clinical and cost effectiveness. So what do you think then? Is there ever a place for alternative medicine in hospitals or GP surgeries? Let us know. Women Today at manxradio.com. You can text 166177 or go to the Women Today Facebook page on Twitter. It's at MRWomenToday and we'll be talking about that just after this. Women Today, brought to you by CityWing.com for your next flight away. 25 past two and we're talking about whether or not there's ever a place for alternative medicine in hospital or GP surgeries and as I suspected it has provoked something of a debate. Um, let's just get our views on this first of all. Kate, where do you stand on homeopathy and the like? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm probably not a fan. I mean, I'm not completely cynical about them because I guess, I guess looking back in history all medicine starts as an alternative but I just think you need scientific proof. And I and I don't know a lot about homeopathy, but from what I have read and experienced, there doesn't seem to be that scientific background to my eyes. And so I am sceptical about it because I just worry that you are giving people in very vulnerable positions who are incredibly ill a false hope. And I don't think that's good. Can I cut? Can I comment on what Kate just said? Kate Burquist, just tell me, first of all, that you, where, what you studied. I did my degree in public health. 
Um, and I just wanted to, uh, to say to Kate, I suppose where you're talking about research and you want scientific research before you probably can believe in mm -hmm. complementary therapy. But there is no research, there's not enough. If they don't invest in research, how will we ever get the results and the, the scientific facts to say, yeah, it does work? I think it's really interesting what you said there as complementary medicine and or complementary therapy. And I really take that as, yeah, complementary to, to medicine, to what mm. I do see scientific proof in. And I don't have a problem with people doing it as a kind of another option. It's just the idea of it being put across as the only alternative. Do you know that one of the things I've got a real issue with, and you know, I suppose I should say that I have had personal experience of using homeopathy, and for me, I have found it helpful. What I really struggle with is that people who are against it absolutely shove their opinion down their throat, and they just say that there was no other alternative. It's just science, it's science, it's science. That's all I ever get. Is that what say. I just did? <laughs> Science is not always correct. <laughs> yeah, I've got a pretty serious one on this because um, I used it myself when I first suffered with depression. I straight away went to St John's Wort because I didn't want to go to um, looking at uh, taking any antidepressants. It wasn't an option for me at that stage. And I really wanted something natural to help me, to put natural into my body. And I've read a lot about it. And um, I have to say... I don't feel it was effective um, because then, you know, I did go through a stage where antidepressants need to came in, come in. Um, however, I've used it with the kids for arnica, for bruising. It definitely helps, definitely. Um, but I think there's a time and place for medicine. And I do see that homeopathy has a place too. Um, but, you know, until you've used it and until there has been a valid reason for you to be pro or against, you know, you can't really comment on it, I don't believe. I but, think I agree with that. And I do agree with what you said, Kate. I would no, in no way, shape or form say, actually, let's plough all NHS funding towards this. Absolutely, it needs to be complementary. But I do think that there can't be thousands of people who use it and have had positive effects from it. They can't all be wrong. But I am absolutely fascinated, I think I've said on this show before, by the placebo effect and how effective and powerful placebo effect is. But then, but, that... but let me finish Sorry. my sentence, Miss Espy. Um <laughs> But I think the fact is that, that, you know, a placebo works even when you know it's a placebo. That's how powerful it is. And if it's a placebo and it works, I have no problem with it being a placebo. Just admit that it's a placebo. Uh, why do I have such a problem getting an appointment with my homeopath? Because, because people are desperate. I don't think they're desperate. I, think I don't if think you are so. vulnerable and ill and looking for any support or any help that you can, you are vulnerable. You don't just and go to homeopath because you're desperate. You go also because of the appointment that they give you and the time and they look at everything around you, everything, and they give you so much more time than a doctor ever would. I think that's a real key point. It's not just a, a ten, generally a 10-minute slot. It is looking at you holistically, looking at various aspects of your life. And I guess a lot of it is the time that you can have then to sort of talk about yourself, which you don't get conventionally. And, that, and that's brilliant. I'm not discrediting having that time and that attention, but I just don't agree that it should be... Um, used in the NHS I don't that is an alternative and you can seek that alternative yourself what about something like acupuncture then how do you feel about that again it's this I have the same thing if it works for you fantastic anything that works is brilliant but it shouldn't be prescribed because there isn't enough in my opinion evidence that I have seen but, to back it up. but physiotherapy has yeah, because there is science behind oh, it. Oh, see, look, there yeah. it is. But then, science, but then science. I, you say you get annoyed by people saying, well, science, science. I get annoyed by people saying, oh, but if you, you just need to believe it works. You believe, because it's belief. Mm. But so if it's it works, what does it matter? Yeah, exactly. That, and that's what I just said. What that she is, said. I just said it. I just said that too. <laughs> and that's my point. If it works, fantastic. Go for it. Do it. Whatever works for you. You don't need it in the NHS. I, I was going to mention money and funding as well, but you did just make that point. You know, you say you can't get an appointment with your homeopath, but it, they are expensive and they throw too much money at the biomedical model. And you don't agree, Kate, that they should put any money towards that, do you? I think they should put money should go towards research. Yeah, I Before money I agree. goes towards treatment. That was going to be my next comment. That's where the money should go to the research. Thelma, do you believe in homeopathy? Um, I can't say if I'm perfectly honest I've given it much thought I've certainly not been involved in having any I've always been perfectly happy with well I've always been perfectly um, happy with 
the treatment I've got from the doctors and I've been extremely fortunate. I've always been perfectly well. So A good cup of tea solves it all, doesn't it, Salma? <laughs> it does, Kate. <laughs> so we've had some interesting uh, comments on this one, Kate. Yeah, I think it's fair to say when you mention homeopathy, people instantly are on either side of this argument. Yeah. Um, Susie says, for those whose conditions are complex and incurable, all sorts of claims are put out there that alternative, often costly remedies are the answer. There is the placebo effect, which can't be n- denied, but I worry that hopes are raised and dashed by practitioners who sell unlicensed, untested remedies. Christine says homeopathy is a load of and has been proved such in many scientific studies. And uh, there's been quite a debate between some of our uh, our Facebook friends. Uh, Simone started it saying, and homeopathy is the only alternative way to heal. But of course, we will deny all the other ways people have treated and healed themselves for thousands of years, simply because a human in a white lab coat has not approved it. Whereas Dan says, alternative medicine is a more palatable way of saying products or methods with a claimed health benefit unproven by science. If they were efficacious in any appreciable way, they would be adopted as mainstream medicine and used as such. And it goes on. Keep your thoughts coming in. Women's Day at manxradio.com. You can text 166177. Go to Facebook. Have a wee look at some of the comments there, if you dare. Or you can uh, also comment on Twitter. It's at MRWomenToday. 28 minutes to three. Now let's uh, just change the subject for a moment because there's a chance to have a look around some of the island's art studios and start your handcrafted Christmas shopping later this month because it's the third Christmas in the Yard event and Potter, Katie Mitchell and Pinewood Studio are going to be opening their doors to passers-by. It's all taking place on November the 28th and 29th and I've been up to Kurt Michael to get a little preview. Now Katie you were on Women's Day a little while ago and you did invite us to come down to your studio so here I am, it's lovely and you're going to be opening up just before Christmas aren't you, tell me what's happening. Yes so we'll be having an open weekend the last weekend of November Um, we call it Christmas in the Yard so it's sort of our little pre-Christmas celebration so um, I'll have my studio open with all of my Christmas wares ready to sell Uh, and Pinewood Studio Furniture will be open as well and they'll have lots of lovely new pieces Um, and we uh, we make it lovely and festive so we will make mulled wine and spiced apple juice and and, yeah lovely festive treats so it's it's a nice way to start your Christmas shopping. Well I just walked into your studio with my two-year-old and I was instantly terrified that she was going to run around and break everything. I mean, you must get a little bit nervous of people coming into your space. No, it's people tend to be on their best behaviour when they come in. Um, touch wood, hope I'm not jinxing myself now, um, there, there haven't been any breakages in here as yet, but I've, you know, probably ruined that now. Um, I'm sitting very still. <laughs> so just tell me what you're working on at the moment. I am making some of the pots that hopefully you'll be able to buy during the Christmas in the Yard event. Um, So yes, deep into Christmas preparation at the moment. Um, So the range I'm making for Christmas is um, the small ramekins, the small dishes and wine cups. Um, So everything will have a little festive touch of gold on them and lots of little um, robins. Some people may have seen the robins I've done in my work this year. I'm also introducing some wren and hair patterns as well, which I think will be really lovely for the Christmas season. It's really fascinating seeing your workspace because you've got a a drawing pad in front of you there with a lot of words and sort of doodles on it. I mean, is that how you do your design process do thoughts just pop into your head and you kind of have to scribble them down yeah I I carry a notepad with me most of the time Uh, if if you see me in a cafe or a pub I'm probably there like with, with my notepad writing something down furiously before I forget it and then designs can take a few months to kind of pull together and experiment I, I tend to draw everything before it ends up on my work as, as something ready to sell it takes quite a, a while to develop things and can you talk us around your studio because it all happens in here does it, it does it does everything happens in this little space so it's it's a small room it's only about nine by nine foot and um, so I've got uh, my wheel over there under the the window so that's where all the pots are made so everything I make is wheel thrown in a very traditional way I've got the workbench here next to us, so all the in-between processes happen here. So at the moment, I'm drawing and painting. Um, Next week, it will will be cleared off and I'll be preparing clay on it, and then I'll be glazing on it. And then behind us, more shelves that are stacked full of pots. Uh, And then I've got my kiln here in the opposite corner. Um, So uh, And that's that's firing most nights at the moment to, to kind of get through... Um, the workload, and then the sink, which is then the the washboard stacked up full of pots that need to be wrapped up for another order. Um, And then there's lots of pots in the window as well on display. And then I've got display boards up with sort of newspaper articles and and lists of things I need to be making and little bits of inspiration. So it's, it's a really nice place to work. It's all very compact. But it's absolutely you, isn't it? And I think that's what's so lovely about this space and seeing... 
I don't know, sort of getting a glimpse inside it. How much pressure do you feel in the run-up to Christmas? Because, you know, like you say, you've got these orders sort of stacking up. I mean, I just don't think I could deal with that pressure. (laughs) There is pressure, but most of it is self-inflicted. My stockists are all um, very good-natured. Um, so far, none of you know none of them have sort of been hassling with saying, "Where are the pots? We need the pots now." Um, everybody understands that it's a very long, slow process when you're working with clay, and that there are quite a lot of pitfalls. I mean, especially in winter, you know, with with um, cooler, wetter temperatures, everything takes a lot longer to dry, so the timelines get stretched by that as well. Um, so it's a good kind of pressure. It's you know certainly wonderful to be busy and to have a full order book for Christmas. And do you ever have days where you just think, I'm not feeling it? Do you know what? I'm, I'm throwing this pot around the wheel and it's just not happening. <laughs> yes, there are, there are fewer and fewer of those days now, which is nice. But yeah, there are certainly some days maybe if I haven't had a, a good night's sleep, then yeah, it gets a bit frustrating on the wheel and just smush it immediately. I've kind of learned over the years to tell quickly if it's going to be a bad pot and to just get rid of it and move on. Because there's just no point in like spending 10 minutes making something that's still bad. <laughs> and do you make all your family and friends Christmas presents? The ones that will appreciate it, yes. I don't force them upon everyone because, you know, it's not going to be everyone's taste. I don't want to be that person who always inflicts the handmade gifts on their friends and family. So there are certain people that I know do appreciate it. <laughs> and just thinking about the, the Christmas event, it's a great chance for people who have maybe never seen or um, heard about your work before just to come and have a, a sneaky peek. And I bet you get some quite interesting questions. Any uh, potential potters come and see you for some tips? Uh, occasionally, yeah, um, a few people that are sort of trying it out and want to know, you know, what kind of clay to use or, or colours, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's it's really lovely to be able to welcome people in here because it's sort of a almost a bit. It's got a bit of mystery to it, I think, and it, and it's I think it's um, people really find it interesting to learn how it's made, where it was made, you know, why I do certain things. Um, and they kind of learn that there's a lot more to the process than they might have originally thought. Do you let people have a go? It's a bit messy, I'm afraid. As, as you can see, it's a really small space. Um, and for, for the open weekend events, it all gets cleaned up and sort of it turns, it becomes more of a showroom than a studio. So I do get the occasion of people going, oh, we have go on the wheel. I'm like, oh, but I've cleaned it. It's so nice and clean. Don't make me mess it up again. <laughs> I'm guessing that's the answer I'd get if I asked to have a go. Look, Katie, thank you so much for um, letting me have a look around. And I didn't even mention the ghost theme once. Oh, well done. Well done. I'm proud of you. Yeah, you go me. Uh, now, that uh, open event is going to be at Lower Bishop Court Farm on the 28th or 29th of November. You'll be more than welcome there between 2 and 6pm and you can find out more information by searching Christmas in the Yard on Facebook. Now, we've been talking about whether or not there's ever a place for alternative medicine in hospitals or GP surgeries. Elaine says, I believe that acupuncture is cheaper and more effective than some prescribed drugs and can help with drug and alcohol problems. And another text says, I agree with Kate Holland. Is that, is that your number, Kate? Now, this afternoon, we are going to be talking about a charity calendar which is going to raise money for the women's refuge here in the Isle of Man. Now, in the past year, 20 women and 32 children have escaped domestic violence here by going to the refuge. And the refuge is never empty. It is always supporting women and possibly their children who've been suffering from some form of domestic abuse. Well, to tell us more about how the refuge actually works, we're joined by Thelma Lomax, who works on the refuge committee. Thelma, what exactly does the refuge provide? Well, uh, the refuge provides a, a safe house for people who are suffering from domestic violence. And um, they can come to us. Uh, they Well, they first of all would telephone our helpline and then they would be contacted by one of our volunteers who would talk to them make sure that it was domestic violence and it wasn't just housing problems or something like that, and then they would meet them and bring them into the refuge. Now, the refuge is a very, very nice house that over the years we have managed to make very, very comfortable. Everybody has their own room with their own key so that they can feel if they want to be private or they want to, they can go and do that. It has a lovely lounge, big playroom, five bedrooms, a big bathroom and a shower room so uh, and a very large kitchen plus dining room so although they have to share those facilities they do have their own bedrooms and they can you know their rooms are they have their own keys but they have to share the rest of the facilities now the people who come in we 
like them to feel it is their home when they are there. So we have special locks on the doors uh, and any of us, even from the committee or the volunteers or anyone who actually goes in to see anyone, we will always put, put the appropriate number in the door, ring the bell, because we feel very strongly that you don't walk into somebody's house unannounced and therefore, if we want them to feel it's their home, we shouldn't do that either. Now, Thelma, you said it's, it's for people who are suffering from domestic violence. Does that always have to be physical? Oh, absolutely not. There is all sorts of domestic violence. And it's uh, yes, there is physical. Of course there is. There's stress-related, there's sexual. There's all types of, of violence. People do have the opinion that um, everybody who comes in has got either a broken arm or a black eye or something like that just not true that you know there are different types but they're all still as as upsetting as the other and at what point would a woman typically get in touch with the refuge because I'm assuming it's it's when they really feel that they have no other option <laughs> yes people some people think that oh, oh nobody these days will put up with any sort of trouble at home and they you know they ring up and they'll come in to get out of the way completely untrue People will put up with domestic violence for various reasons for years. And then either it'll just got too much or perhaps the children are a bit older or, um, you know, or perhaps they've seen an advertisement and they realise that there is a way out and then they will contact us. I, I do stress that I personally think that that these ladies are very, very brave because, if you think about it, to pick the phone up to us and ask, can you come in? You're coming to a house you don't know. You don't know what the facilities are. You have no idea what it's like. You're giving up your home. You're giving up, at that stage, maybe not in the end, you're giving up your home. You're giving up your, your friends from round about. So you really have got to have got to the end of your tether. How many women can you have in the refuge at any one time? Well, we have five bedrooms. Uh, and it all depends how many children they have, really, you know. So, yeah, we, we it's rare that we have all five uh, w with people in. And we try not to because of emergencies. You know, the police may bring us someone. Social services may bring us someone at the last minute. So we don't want to have nowhere for them. But, um, you know, basically two or three rooms on a regular basis. Now, the refuge is run by volunteers. And interestingly, yes. you're not trained counsellors, are you? I no. mean, what is, what is the essence of the work that you are providing then? Well, no, we're not trained counsellors. And we make that very, very clear. But we work very, very closely with... Uh, relate the children's centre the police uh, victim support um, and uh, the local doctors the schools uh, we have all the contacts for the ladies the housing division we have all the contacts for the ladies to go to and our volunteers will sit and talk for hours they're lovely lovely people and they will sit and talk for hours to people but we make it very clear and I think it's most important that this is always done in everything. You know, don't take on more than what you are qualified to do. But we have all the contacts that we can send them to qualified people to get help, and we do. Now, we can't talk about exactly where the refuge is. No. And I just wonder then how you let these women, these vulnerable women who are in these various positions, know that you are there when you have to keep a level of secrecy. <laughs> well, on the Isle of Man, that's difficult. <laughs> particularly as like so many people know so many people and just one little instance we have to do is that we can't let the children play out at the front because of cars and other people going past they have to we have got a lovely back that that we've made for as a playground for them but that's just one little instance that you can't we do ask the ladies and we do stress that they please don't tell anyone when you've been in we're not stupid and we know they must say sometimes the odd person must say something or tell another member of family who may say, oh, they looked after my daughter or something like that. But generally, we've been exceedingly fortunate in P 
people not finding out where it is. So how long can a woman stay then? It all depends on the circumstances and everybody is different. They can stay, some stay days, weeks, others stay months. Now, we never put a restriction on how long they can stay. We actually say when they start getting back on their feet, they must try and look for somewhere else because we cannot offer full-time accommodation. It's only temporary. But temporary doesn't mean a week or two. Temporary can mean we've just got a lady fixed up that's been with us nine months, but hers was a bad case and she needed that time before she could get back on her feet. So it does depend. You can't say, oh, you can come in for a week. You don't know. And when a woman comes in, they are supported and, and they go to leave, where would they typically go? Oh, very difficult, that. Some, some, not as many as we would like, but some do get injunctions and get the house back that the husband or partner can't go near them there. Um, we help them via various housing associations and the local um, councils uh, to we give them letters to say they're in with us and that helps them to get up the housing ladder better so we have contacts with the housing associations and we do help them to get that some people manage to get uh, housing uh, or go and live with some family member or something like that all sorts of different things but we do do our best um, but we expect them also to try to find somewhere. You know, they don't, we, we will put them in the right position to go and talk to people and, and the right people to talk to, but they must make the effort themselves to try to move on. But we never put anybody out because they couldn't find anywhere. But Thelma, some, some of the women who you see, and, and you've heard what I can only imagine sometimes are really distressing stories, some of them go back. Oh, yes, I'm afraid so. Yes, and that is nothing we can do anything about, and that would be wrong for us to tell them not to, because that is their choice. I have to say that in the past, if they come back to us a second time, they will let us help them. But many go back after the first stay with us. Um, if you, It's difficult to say, and people don't always understand this, but... You know, in lots of these cases, the husband does not harm the children. Husband or partner, I keep forgetting that, uh, does not harm the children. So it's very difficult as a mother when the children are, are wanting to go back, they're wanting to see the dad, they're wanting their friends, they're wanting the rooms, the toys. She, the poor woman is torn, isn't she? You know, you're torn between... Am I upsetting my children? Should I put up with this? And that's a lot of the reason they go back. But then, as I say, if they come again, they, the majority of them do let us help them. Thelma, I think we should make the point that, of course, domestic abuse goes the other way as well. It's not always oh, yeah. a man abusing a woman. It can be a woman abusing a man, a man abusing a man, a woman abusing a woman. Why do you think it's important that it is a a women's refuge well yes of course and we do get calls from men uh, uh, I mean percentage wise very few compared to the calls from women that could be not as it's not going on it could be that men don't like to admit it so you know there is you have to take that into consideration um, well First of all, we couldn't have men in the refuge because the majority of ladies, till they get back on the feet, are afraid. So we couldn't mix. It's not something we could mix. And I think you have to accept you can only do as much as you can with the money you have available. And we were very, very fortunate in um, a lady, a friend of mine, buying us the house. Now, if she hadn't have been so kind as to buy the house, we would have never afforded a house like we've got. Now, if we had to start with men, we and that's 20 years ago. Now, if we had to start looking after men, well, we, we just would not have the finance. 
we could not start, we couldn't, because it'd have to be a separate entity. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying we wouldn't have the staff or we couldn't get the staff to do it. We probably could, but we couldn't have the, we'd never get the finance. Thanks as always to our amazing guests. And as ever, it's never too late for you to get involved. Head over to Facebook, find the Women Today Facebook page and you can comment there or you can follow us at MR Women Today on Twitter. And you can listen again to the full programmes on manxradio.com or join us every weekday live from just after two o'clock. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.